Chinese government's attempts to regulate the insatiable borrowing habits of its massive real estate industry is causing headaches for investors and home buyers. Not to mention the potential for a major debt crisis. So, so in China, uh -huh. a lot of local government investment companies that are, you know,、um, have a land bank. They're building infrastructure, and even some property developers. They have been in this Minsky stage or the Ponzi stage of the, according to Minsky's theory, for quite some time. Did you know that China's real estate industry is essentially a gigantic Ponzi scheme? Hey there, news peelers. Today is January seven, two thousand twenty-two, and this is Adele, the host of the Peel Dot News. Welcoming you to the first episode of our second season. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share. Sometimes it's a shocker. And sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the peel dot news is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens. Then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink, and let's get into it. China's housing market is in the doldrums. For example, just last month, contracted sales for top property developers in China fell by 31 percent from a year earlier. And also last month, the China Evergrande Group. One of China's largest real estate developers defaulted on its loan after it missed debt payments. According to the Wall Street Journal, that was potentially Asia's largest default, which makes sense because the New York Times also identifies Evergrande as the world's most indebted developer. So, how much debt are we exactly talking about here? Three hundred billion dollars, billion with a B. And twenty billion dollars of that debt is in U.S. dollar bonds, and it's not just the Evergrande Group that's suffering. Other real estate developers, such as the Yango Group in China, were facing imminent default in the closing months of 2021 as well. And this is not just a financial issue; there are serious social ramifications here. An article published in the New York Times earlier this week featured a photo of police officers. Standing guard outside the Evergrande International Center in China, protesters were home buyers, and Evergrande employees are contractors. Shouting, "Evergrande, give my money back!" The continued health of the real estate industry is a big deal for China, even a bigger deal than it is here in the U.S., because real estate activity accounts for about a quarter of China's GDP, compared to about 15 percent of our GDP. In America, so will China experience a U.S.-like real estate crash that led to the 2008 Great Recession? 
Well, not if China's central bank can help it. According to the governor of the People's Bank of China, the risk caused by a few real estate firms in the short run would not undermine the market for the medium and the long run. So does this mean that China's authorities, including a central bank, will step in to avert a financial crisis to prevent the implosion of China's real estate industry? To answer that question and more, much more, we spoke with Mr. Victor Xi, an associate professor at UC San Diego's School of Global Policy and Strategy and the chair in China and Pacific Relations. Prior to joining UC San Diego, Mr. Xi was a professor of political science at Northwestern University and former principal for one of the largest American private equity firms. In addition to discussing China's real estate debt challenges, in this episode, we'll also talk about a recent and relevant book edited by Professor Xi, Economic Shocks and Authoritarian Stability. Essentially, how do authoritarian governments, such as China's, handle economic crisis. The link for that book, as well as the link to Professor Xi's academic homepage, are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So stay with me as Professor Xi and I peel the history behind this news. The Peel.News is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Xi, it is such a pleasure to have you on our program today. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. So let's get right into it. Is China's real estate industry experiencing a debt crisis now? And, and this is a big deal because real estate is a huge part of China's economy. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, My pleasure. pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, so this is the question that everyone is sort of asking. But, you know, for someone like myself who has looked at this for, you know, uh, 20 years or so, uh, the Chinese real estate industry has been in a rolling debt crisis for, you know, a good part of the past decade, if not longer, um, in, in the sense that uh, the players uh, that are in that industry, um, especially the real estate developers and the local governments, have been very aggressively borrowing money uh, on the hopes that the main assets that, that they hold, uh, i.e. the land on which the buildings are going to be built, and the buildings themselves are going to rise in value. Uh, because of this common belief, um, the buyers who are these households also uh, have increasingly borrowed money to purchase real estate. Uh, household debt has not been a, such a serious problem uh, until the recent two, three years. Uh, but I would say that uh, the borrowing by Chinese households by real estate is uh, catching up to that of the United States. Um, so, yeah, you know, the leveraging has... You mean per capita family borrowing ratio? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. wow. Yeah, so catching up to the U.S. Yeah, you can measure it by as a share of GDP or as a share of household savings. And those ratios are going up very fast, actually. Um, 
but the the developers and the local governments have been borrowing uh, very irresponsibly uh, by some definition for, for quite some time. Uh, so so now the the sort of trigger for the recent um, episodes, let's say with Evergrande, uh, was actually regulatory. So the Chinese government, in an effort to slow down or even reverse this uh, steady upward in March in leveraging, they implemented the harsh regulations in 2020, which are now having all these repercussions, uh, you know, property developers threatening to default and so on and so forth. So the, the crisis is, is, is not happening because, you know, uh, all the actors have lost faith in housing as a core asset. <clears throat> it's really a response to regulatory actions, which, you know, of course, historically, they do trigger crises sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, but I think in the case of China, uh, the kind of layman moment that we saw in this country in 2008, uh, we're probably not going to see it just because the central bank, the People's Bank of China is paying very close attention to the situation and they can do what the Federal Reserve did uh, in the end in you know, 2008, 2009, which is to pump a huge amount of liquidity into the system. They can do that anytime. Uh, they just choose not to do it at this point. Uh, but once there is this more urgent crisis developing, and we could be sort of heading in that direction, I'm not saying that we're not, uh, the PBOC can respond very quickly. In the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned that uh, we've had a rolling debt crisis for the past decade or so. So is that a, then I guess that's not a crisis if it's been going on for a decade, it's sort of a development. Is, is the moment of crisis because of uh, the Chinese government is stepping in and essentially saying, hey, guys, the party's over. We need to regulate it a little bit. Is this now becoming a crisis or did you really mean it that it's been a crisis for more than a decade? Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know if you guys have ever done an episode on Minsky. <laughs> like Min no, <laughs> we haven't. Maybe we should. So uh, according to Minsky's theory, um, basically investment enters into what's called a Ponzi phase. Uh, when I'm sorry, at what phase? A Ponzi, like Ponzi. Oh, Ponzi, yeah, yeah. Ponzi phase. When, uh, let's say you invest in a business, right? A real, mm -hmm. or, you know, selling ice cream or, or whatever it is. You borrow $100 to invest in, in the business, uh, let's say at 5%, right? So every year you have to pay $5 in interest. Uh, so for Minsky, a, a investment enters in the Ponzi scheme. If, let's say you set up an ice cream shop, in one year, you could not generate $5 in profit. You know, you're generating $3 or $4 in profit. That's not enough to pay the interest on the debt that you took out to invest in that ice cream shop. So for a lot of uh, analysts like me and Mike Pettis, uh, we see this as a big problem. You know, it's, it doesn't mean that there's a crisis or whatever. It's just that, you know, the underlying asset is garbage because uh, it's not able to generate cash flows sufficient to pay even the interest. Um, so is it is it akin? Are you drawing analogies to the current crisis? In yes. China? So, so in China, uh -huh. a lot of local government investment companies that are you know um, have a land bank, they're building infrastructure, and even some property developers they have been in this Minsky stage or the Ponzi stage of the 
according to Minsky's theory, for quite some time. So oh, wow. Borrowed a lot of money. So if you look at like Evergrande, for example, you know, they borrowed, you know, $300 billion in debt. You can do some simple calculation. You know, let's say they're paying on average 5% in interest, which actually they're paying even higher. Uh, so that's like $15 billion in interest payment every year. Are their businesses collectively generating $15 billion in profit every year? What's the answer to that? I, I haven't done the exact calculation. <laughs> Most likely not. And, and there are many, many sort of real estate or infrastructure related companies in China that are in that situation. And they have been in that situation for the past, you know, eight years, nine years. So then you ask, how is this possible? Right? <laughs> how is this possible? Keep going. Well, it's possible if these entities can go to a bank and say, guess what? I can't repay you. So let's say you borrow $100. Uh, at the end of the year, you owe the bank $105, right? Because there's interest payment, $5. You go to the bank, yeah. I can't repay you. And the bank said, no problem. I'm going to give you a new loan that's worth $105. You can use and, 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 and let me guess. The bank is doing this because it's the backstop. There you go. It's backstop. The government told them to do it. Yes. Um, one, one question that I just want to make sure I, I don't forget to ask it is this. Why is it that we hear so much about Evergrande versus all the other companies? Some of them are even larger. Is it because the regulators in China have picked on it now? Or is there another reason here? Uh, there could be some kind of political reason. But, but I think the, the big reason is the scale. I mean, they, they have been the most aggressive and borrowed. Uh, kind of very aggressively leverage increases have uh, risen very fast, uh, especially since 2015. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest reason. Uh, and so when these harsh regulations were implemented in uh, 2020, um, they were immediately affected because they borrowed so much money. So ba basically, um, this is a simple version of stories. This right. So let's say you invest in an ice cream store. You borrow $100 at the end of the year. You owe the bank $105. You go to the bank, say, I can't repay you. The bank gives you a new loan that's $105. The next year, you also can't repay the bank. You go back to the bank. The bank says, okay, fine. You know, give you a new loan, like $111.50, whatever it is, uh, and so on and so forth. But then last year, the, the Chinese regulators basically said, enough. This is crazy. You know, so for banks or for property companies that are doing this year after year after year, you can't do this anymore. But then there are companies like Evergrande, they owe $300 billion to say, well, what do you mean we can't do it anymore? Oh, $300 billion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, but, but in the same breath, you're saying that the, the POC, uh, China Central Bank, won't won't let a 2008 U.S. moment happen in China. Yes, they cannot. So it's a fine dance between what, yeah. they, how much they regulate. Constraining the leveraging of property developers uh, and crashing the economy. I, the, the regulators, they do not want to crash the economy. Xi Jinping himself has said many, many times that stability above everything. Uh, so... The regulators know that they can't crash the economy. But at the same time, if you, so, you know, this is like moral hazard, right? So if you tell everyone that you don't want to crash the economy, <laughs> then the party goes on. 
people are going to borrow very aggressively because they know full well that it is a bubble already. And if there's any serious effort to try to end the bubble, the whole thing is going to crash and you're going to have financial instability, which is not what the party wants. Um, That's probably devastating for the world. Yeah, it would be. Well, I don't think it will hit the United States that much, uh, but it will uh, countries that export a lot of commodities, uh, especially iron ore and coal to China. Of course. Um, you know, we've been talking about borrowing and debt a lot. In my readings, especially in preparation for this podcast conversation with you, I've come across this term shadow banks. You know, for us, for, for a U.S. reader, I kind of think of like, you know, loan sharks and everything, but it's not that. What are shadow banks in China? It seems to be, they seem to be a big deal. Uh, yeah, um, they are a big part of the landscape, especially for property developers and, and even local government. No, it, it, they are kind of like loan sharks because they are. Oh, they offer credit, but at a very high interest rate. Uh, they most of the time they don't, you know, use uh, physical coercion to get their money back. Uh, but but I've seen cases where they do do that. <laughs> so it is a bit like loan sharks. Um, but uh, basically, these property developers uh, sometimes they can't borrow enough money from the banks uh, because the banks they have all these caps. It's like oh, you can't lend too much money to yeah. property developers who are over levered or you know, when the land hasn't been acquired yet by the property developer, et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes um, the developers, they have to go into the gray market to borrow money um, at higher interest rates. Uh, but, you know, it's not like, you know, some guy in a leather jacket, <laughs> you know, handing money. <laughs> they have offices. Some these are institutions. These, these are institutions. These, they're called trust companies. A lot trust of companies. They uh, work with the, the banks. So sometimes a bank will go to a trust company and say, well, guess what? Our client can't get enough money because we have all these regulations constraining how much money we can lend to a client of ours. Can you guys help out? You know, so, so, so these trust companies step in and say, OK, sure, but we're going to charge like 15 percent or whatever. Uh, so the problem for property developer is that already sometimes the profit margin is very narrow. Uh, very thin, and then they have they have a lot of debt. They have to pay interest, but then if they borrow from the gray market from shadow banking, their interest payments get even more onerous, right? So, uh, from the state banks, uh, property developers can probably borrow at seven percent, uh, but if they go to shadow banking, they have to pay twice as much, like fifteen percent. Wow! So if you open up an ice cream store, you're paying fifteen percent. That's very tough, right? Because, you know, it's hard to sell, make money from selling ice cream. Uh, you know, even if previously you had profit margin of 5% a year, suddenly if you borrow at 15%, you're not able to service your interest. I'm on a diet and you keep on talking about ice cream. Maybe we should change it to produce or something. That's what I'm thinking too. So <laughs> <That's, yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, why is it that every time uh, we read about China's economy, and this is a general growth statement, I appreciate that, but really it happens frequently. When we read about China's economy, borrowing and development, we always also read about local governments. It, it sort of 
when you compare a local provincial government or a smaller sort of city uh, level government, they seem to be much more powerful and involved in the economy than their counterparts in America, such as a county government or a state government. Is this a correct assessment? Yeah, so one uh, core fact about China is that there's no perpetual property rights. Uh, so when you buy real estate, oh, wow. buy a piece of land uh, from the Chinese government or from someone else, you have a 70-year lease. That uh, and, and it changes also, everything. The application of eminent domain is used very liberally and done all the time. So, so then uh, the so the property rights really belong to the local governments. Uh, so the and then you can see wow. how that's important in the real estate industry because it's all about land acquisition. Uh, so you know, let's say downtown you know, Shenzhen or something like that. Shenzhen has been struggling with this for many years. Uh, there are these older buildings that uh, some of the original villagers have lived in. Um, in the case of Shenzhen, they didn't want to use force to expel these people, but they have the legal rights to do so. Uh, so they just didn't want to make it too ugly. But in many, many other cities around China, um, the local governments have created land by expelling the original residents uh, on these pieces of land. Once they expel the residents, then they can take the land and sell it uh, to property developers. Is, um, is, is the fact that there's no perpetual property rights uh, in China, is this a construct of China's, of China's communist yeah. form of government? It's, or communist. Or yeah, it's a communist government, yes. That's what it is. Is there a, by the way, is there a preference or encouragement by China's local or national government to pay domestic lenders ahead of international lenders? I've read for about the, this on the wall. For these property developers, yeah, I think generally that's yeah. how it works out. I mean, there's no explicit, you know, laws or whatever. Basically, the property developers, they don't want to offend uh, the domestic banks because they charge the lowest interest. They're the lowest interest lender, uh, and also they're most um, open to bribery, <laughs> to put it simply. So uh, there, it's, there are ways to get these loans from these domestic lenders, uh, so they don't want to be on the wrong side of the domestic lenders. Um, and so that's that's why they would rather hoard money to repay domestic lenders than to um, use those whatever you know small cash flows they have to pay foreign debt holders. But at the end of the day, if you're an American investor or investors from some other country, a uh, Chinese property company defaults on a bond, good luck suing them in a Chinese court. Yeah, where you can get your money back. Uh, the legal proceedings can take years and years and years. And even after that, the enforcement is going to be very problematic. So for these distressed uh, developers, they feel that they can drag that out a bit. Whereas for domestic lender, um, if they're not uh, happy with you, and if they completely shut off uh, credit lines from property companies, they, they would be in pretty big trouble uh, because oh. forced to borrow entirely from shadow banking. And as we discuss, uh, shadow bank, the cost of shadow banking is quite high. Yeah. Why don't we take a short break and then talk about major changes 
in China's economic policies. Did you know that China's one-child policy, that pervasive and intrusive policy that was unprecedented in human history, a policy that led to millions of forced abortions and sterilizations, was in fact never the law of the land in China because, amazingly, it was never written into law. And did you know that China lost Hong Kong to Britain in a war? A war that was fought over opium. Opium that the British Empire sold to China by force against the will of China's imperial government. To listen to these podcast conversations, just click the link for the China series in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to my conversation with Professor Xi. Professor Xi, is China's leader, President Xi, pivoting China away from its sort of roaring capitalistic economy of the last 34 years? And if your answer is yes, then what is he pivoting it towards? Uh, yeah, no, I think we're definitely seeing a uh, pivoting. Um, you know, he, I think he sees a lot of excesses uh, in the Chinese economy during the Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao years. Uh, the high concentration of wealth, um, the persistence of poverty in different parts of China, um, and also the increasing power and resources of the private sector that in some cases exceeds the power and resources of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and, and that for him, I think, is, is a big, big problem. You know, uh, he grew up in the Chinese Communist Party. He, I think I personally think that he really believes in a, a lot of the ideology that uh, has been taught to him since he was very little. Um, and so he, he, does, he wants the party to do well. Uh, but the, the one way that in which he sees the party to do well is for him to take personal control of the party and to enact um, you know, policies that he thinks will... Uh, reverse some of these undesirable trends uh, in China, in Chinese economy, and also in Chinese society. I mean, the other thing that really doesn't like is this conspicuous consumption uh, and this worship of money um, that that he sees as a major societal problem in China now. Um, so he's enacted a lot of policies to try to reverse some of these things. Uh, but, you know, the, the one thing I would say is that, you know, his vision is for China to moralistically go back to the late 1950s, early 1960s, before the Cultural Revolution, when at least, you know, the people that he lived with, <laughs> these high-level cadres and their children, all had a pretty uniform uh, moralistic vision, uh, very strong patriotism. Um, the only thing... But that was such a small click. The rest of China was in... Uh poverty was in a famine yeah famine yeah <laughs> is that lost to him really i i think it is to some extent uh the the resolution on history well a summary of it was just published this morning it did not mention the great leap forward or the cultural revolution um interesting so so for him you know the party has only done good things. And even sort of the not so great things the party has done has ended up benefiting 
people in China in, in some way. I mean, that's how he sees the Cultural Revolution. This Cultural Revolution was very harsh on him. He was expelled from Beijing. He went to the countryside, lived in the countryside for many years. Um, under Even though his father was a, was a high... Uh, I love uh, elite. Yeah. Um, um, so he's, he, even though objectively that was a terrible thing to do to a teenager, he now talks about that in very glowing terms. It was like, in the end, it was a very good experience for me because I learned so much. Uh, so that's how he sees the part. He defends it kind of no matter what. Um, and, and he doesn't understand why there are all these pluralistic tendencies in societies. Like, why can't everyone in China just believe in the same things that I do? Uh, so he's trying to make that happen. But I think, you know, we're in the 21st century. <laughs> Even different things, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, but but he doesn't he doesn't agree with that. So does he ultimately see Chinese China's economy going back to a real communist model? Uh, no. So um, he, he does recognize that you need the market economy. One thing that um, you know obviously will be different about today's China relative to the 1950s is uh, the role of technology. Um, so he has put a very heavy emphasis on China gaining technological supremacy uh, in the world, uh, both kind of military technology, obviously, but also uh, uh, electronics, IT, big data, AI. Uh, so these are all issues that he's put a lot of emphasis on. Uh, Chinese government's pouring a lot of resources into. There is a bit of a contradiction. You know, he wants the state to the Chinese government to guide the development of these industries. But then he has some awareness that you need the market to play a role or there's not enough incentives. Uh, so a lot of this, this kind of like exactly how to do it and, you know, the role of the state versus the private sector is currently being worked out. Um, he definitely saw that the private sector played too big of a role in the evolution of the IT industry in China. So he scaled that back with recent policies. Um, I know he's pulled um, um, yeah. uh, IPOs off market. I think it was one of the units of Alibaba that was going. Uh, and and yeah, he, yeah. yeah, is is this pivot? Is this sort of ideological uh, reassessment that President Xi is is uh, going through? Is this something that was somewhere in the dusty pages of uh, the communist? party platform that we're going we're going to uh, sort of make our economy stronger for 30 40 years then we're going to stop was that there or is this something that is completely uh, from president xi himself uh i think the emphasis on party control of society that's more of a xi jinping uh, agenda uh his predecessors jiang zemin and hu jintao they, of course, wanted the party to continue to have monopoly of political power, but they were more tolerant with the emergence of a pluralistic economy and a pluralistic society uh, that, you know, uh, younger generations began to have their own sort of values. Uh, they And voices. Then voices and interests. As long as those interests did not become political, uh, the Hu Jintao administration and the Jiang Zemin administrations were largely tolerant of new trends. I mean, of course, 
there are some deeply embedded social problems that have persisted in in China. You know, uh, gender discrimination, sexual harassment, uh, basically this racist treatment of ethnic minorities in China uh, that had persisted. Um, but it had those things arguably has gotten worse under Xi Jinping because uh, he would not allow uh, social voices to try to make adjustments to these uh, deeply seated problems. Whereas the previous administrations were not completely tolerant uh, of you know civil society voices to you know on women's rights, for example, but their existence uh, was tolerated. I see. We'll be back after a short break to talk about economic shocks and authoritarian stability. Uh, Professor Xi is the editor of this book, and I think it's highly relevant to our conversation now. We'll be right back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you! Economic shocks and authoritarian stability. Professor Xi, what is this book about? Uh, so this book is um, looking at what happens to authoritarian power when um, it is hit by economic shocks. Um, so economic shocks can be quite dangerous for uh, authoritarian leaders uh, because um, According to one, at least one tradition in political science theory, at least, uh, authoritarian leaders stay in power by paying a small group of elites to uh, protect the leaders and to uphold the regime in general. So when you have an economic crisis, it decreases tax revenue. It decreases the leader's ability to pay off his or her support coalition. Uh, and that could make some of these elites who support the dictators to defect from the regime, thereby leading to regime collapse. Um, so that's sort of the existing theory kind of uh, puts an emphasis on that. What we found in the book through uh, the exploration of a wide number of cases, uh, including China, but also uh, fascinating cases like uh, Iraq, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Taiwan back in the 1970s during the oil shock was that uh, that did not always happen. In fact, in most cases, even during an economic shock, uh, authoritarian leaders managed to survive them pretty well, um, sometimes by shrinking the number of elites, right? So uh, instead of paying 100 guards to, you know, protect the dictator, they can fire 20% of them and just pay the other 80%. Um, so that, that's basically what Saddam Hussein did uh, in the wake of the sanctions after the first Gulf War. And even though that led to some political instability, there were more attempts uh, to assassinate him and so on and so forth. He stayed in power, you know, until the second uh, Gulf War. 
Yeah, so other uh, dictators um, also survived by having great deal of control over the financial institution. So that turns out to be a very important um, parameter that a lot of this existing literature did not take into account. Uh, so if you control financial institutions, you can you know, shrink the outflow of currency, you can still nurse enough resources to pay off your support coalition. That basically was the story in Malaysia during the Asian financial crisis. Um, so th this is not a book where we definitively say, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z, you're, you're going to stay in power. Uh, basically, the main argument is that it turns out even during financial crisis, there are a lot of strategies dictators can uh, deploy in order to stay in power. They're much more robust than um, maybe even some U.S. policymakers have, have thought, uh, because, you know, of course, one of the favorite tools of the U.S. government now is financial sanctions. Uh, and Iran is still in power. Yeah, all these people are still in power yeah. How, <laughs> in Russia and so on and so forth. You know, it's, it's one thing to talk about economic shocks and sanctions uh, in countries such as Iran and Venezuela or even Russia. Um, um, economic shocks even could cripple democracies such as Italy or Spain. Or, But when it comes to economic shocks, <laughs> China is a behemoth. I mean, it's like a, in a different league of its own. Do you think this study, this narrative is, is applicable to China as well? Uh, yeah, so we, the case of China is in there, I wrote it. Um, the story of China is that, yeah, as you said, you know, it is a behemoth uh, of an economy. Um, and because Chinese leadership had anticipated uh, potential uh, economic shocks, uh, and the biggest kind of threat, which is still, uh, still exists today, uh, for China is capital outflows. Um, basically, you know, if, uh, so part of the magic, as we discussed, of how the housing bubble has kept going is that, you know, when people couldn't repay their loans for their ice cream shop, they go to the bank, the bank gives them a new loan worth $105 and so on and so forth. In order to, to make that happen on a massive scale, the money supply of the entire country has to increase by 10 to 15% a year. So this is at the bottom of everything. This is the trick of financial stability in China is that money supply has to increase, keep this whole thing going. But guess what? Money is liability owed by the central bank. Uh, and so, you know, all this money gets issued, circulates to Chinese households ultimately um, you know, right now, uh, the money supply is, uh, I think something like $30 trillion US dollars. So, uh, if even 10% of that money gets out of China in the sense that, you know, people in China, they're like, Oh, wait a minute. You know, I hold a million renminbi. I like to exchange that for US dollars so I can go buy some Bitcoins or, or whatever. If 10% of the money gets out, and that's not a panic, right? 10% is just normal reallocation. The entire foreign exchange reserve gets wiped out. Uh, then uh, the Chinese currency is going to devalue a lot, you know, potentially by 30%, 50%, who knows, right? Do, do all these mega real estate borrowings, transactions that we touched on in earlier segments, they don't take place in... In, in U.S. dollar 
they take place in some of it. The bonds, some of the bonds are issued in U.S. dollars. Okay, which makes it. What I'm trying to figure out is this: you know how uh, the Bank of Japan or our Federal Reserve here, essentially, it's kind of a trick. We 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 borrow in a denomination in, in our own currency, and even the Federal Reserve buys U.S. treasuries. That's like the government lends it to itself. And the same thing happens in Japan. Does that happen in China? Does China's central bank have so much control? Or is... is, is yeah, is, yeah, they do. They so, do. yeah, so, but, so they control all the domestic banks and they, they basically uh, allow the government to borrow from the banking system by issuing bonds. And then basically the central bank gives liquidity to the banks, the banks buy up government bonds. Uh, so indirectly, they're doing the same thing as like, you know, the Fed buying U.S. treasuries. Um, but the biggest, most important control that the Chinese government has is to prevent capital flight because all the banks belong to the government. They're ordered to not allow money to exit the country, uh, except for very specified circumstances. Uh, and also Chinese households, they have only a $20,000 annual limit of moving money out of China. Is that new? Oh, that's, that had existed for a long, long time. But I'm just saying this is the key lever control that has prevented a financial crisis in China. That's a really interesting point uh, that um, brings up many questions. I'll just ask this sort of real life question here if there's a twenty thousand dollar limit for chinese households and sort of moving money out of the country how is it that many chinese families are buying second homes uh, third homes in canada and california yeah. how is that happening uh that's very difficult to do now not impossible i mean the other thing is like how are uh, all these chinese students paying the tuition that there is a specialized channel. So if it's payment, that's exempted from the 20,000. Uh, but that means, you know, you only have 20,000 in spending money during the year, which increasingly that's, that's tough because yeah. if you go to NYU, I mean, the rent is going to eat up like, oh boy. more than 20,000. Uh, so, so yeah, it is getting very difficult buying real estate. Um, larger the hong kong is still a channel so you can go to money changers in hong kong they have methods of trying to get your money out uh but you have to pay a fee like pretty high fee uh because of regulations um and then macau used to be a big channel you know uh there's there's this trick where uh, you could use your chinese atm card to buy jewelries in, in macau so you swipe it, you buy, let's say, a $10,000 piece of jewelry, you immediately return it. They Then they refund you for the cost of the payment minus 3% service charge or whatever. And But but they, re, they return the refund you in probably US dollars or something. In US dollars, yeah, exactly. And then you, you can sort of invest that in the US or whatever. Um, yeah. This is this is sort of speculation, but still interesting. In the case of China, if a cataclysmic economic shock does come to pass, do you think that would lead to some sort of formation of a democracy, or would that just like make the government clamp down on freedom even more? Uh, no, I think under the Xi Jinping administration, um, politically, it should be. Uh, fine for the party 
Um, I, I don't, ex- even with a pretty big economic shock, I don't expect uh, regime change. Uh, but, you know, is Xi Jinping going to live forever? You know, no. Uh, I think, you know, if it's not Xi Jinping as the leader of China, then you, you could have some kind of change in <clears throat> the structure of government in China. That That's not necessarily related to an economic shock, right? It's sort of- sort of evolution of politics. Um, let's, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Xi as we get into the perspective. Did you know you can preview our podcasts? That's right. Just click the podcast highlights button on our website, www.thepeel.news and we will email you each episode's highlights and relevant links to news and history for free. Pretty cool, right? Professor Xi, many Chinese have lost their life savings by investing in real estate schemes uh, with companies that can no longer deliver on those investments. We talked about Evergrande as one example. And millions of apartments are left empty. I think we've all seen videos or at least photos of clusters of apartment towers in China and hardly anyone lives in them or hardly anyone walks outside of them. So how much discontent is there among people because of this um so the delivery of the apartment is a big problem uh, i think the the government is trying to do something about it uh by providing credit to uh local government investment companies or state-owned real estate developers to buy up these uh distressed projects uh that formerly have been operated by evergrand and, and other distressed developers um, so it is a kind of a total loss to buyers if they never get their apartments. Uh, but in China, it tends to be that, you know, as long as the apartment gets delivered uh, and as long as prices, the notional prices of these apartments, they don't crash, people are generally sort of content. Um, you know, I've even seen kind of extreme cases like in Ordos. So Ordos is the famous ghost city in China. We've talked to a number of these uh, buyers of real estate, you know, they're sitting empty. And I asked them, like, what, what's the plan here? Like, you own two, three apartments. They're empty. You can't rent them out. No one lives in them. And are these ordinary people that own these two, three apartments? Well, so people who can buy, they're, they're actually local government officials. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> they're the only <laughs> so, um, But then what they say is, as like, well, okay, you know, I put my savings in this, but... On paper, this is still worth, you know, this amount. I can't rent it out, uh, but that's okay. You know, the lease is notionally going up in value. I mean, this is another reason why I think it's like there's some deep contradiction uh, with Xi Jinping's policies. Like, oh, I want housing prices to go down, but it's like, well, how can it? You know, your entire urban population has invested in this one asset class. Yeah. Were to go down substantially, they're not going to be very happy and on top of that, the entire financial system is linked to the value of real estate because all these loans, trillions and trillions of dollars of loans going to developers and also to local governments, their collateral is land and real estate. And so, you know, 
if the, the value of land and real estate were to go down substantially, what are you going to do? Do a margin call on the entire Chinese economy? That's just. <laughs> um, so what's the answer here? Uh, no, I think it, this will blow over. I think this, in a way, will be the first big policy failure of the Xi Jinping administration. You know, he, he wanted to lower property prices. It's not possible. It's a huge bubble already, and it has to keep going up. It sounds like uh, sort of the subprime uh, uh, crisis of 2000, pr- prior to 2008, sort of on steroids here. Um, you know. Well, so in a way, I mean, in, I think it's kind of sad, but it is happening. The same thing is happening in the U.S., right? So the Federal Reserve has become very weary of uh, any kind of financial crisis that they have created very easy conditions in the financial market. Of course, that does a lot of good things. You know, you want a big spike in unemployment. You, you don't want, you know, uh, these terrible things like that. But one consequence of easy monetary policy is that asset prices will just keep on drifting upward in the same way that has happened in China for the past, you know, 20 years. And it seems like some of these companies don't even don't just have a liquidity issue. Some of them, many of them actually have a solvency issue, the way you're describing it. They literally can't service the debt. So that's a whole different level. Um, if, if Well, there are, there are companies in the U.S. with those same issues. You know, if it weren't the easy uh, financial condition, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a bit different. I mean, in China, it's, it's a different level of you know, yeah, leveraging. That's 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 true. That's a fair point. If if you wanted our audience to remember just one point about China's fiscal system, what would that be? Oh, um, so one important development is that um, you know I think the Chinese fiscal system used to be kind of normal in the sense that you know Chinese government collected taxes uh, and then uh, spent revenue from the tax base maybe issue some bonds uh, to help finance deficits. Uh, in the recent five years, has really transformed into something else. You know, five to 10 years. Um, all, uh, the First of all, the amount of borrowing has really ramped up, uh, not just by the central government. So you have the local government borrowing, borrowing by the state banks, uh, the policy banks, uh, and then on top of that, the local governments have formed these investment vehicles. They're not counted as the government, um, but, you know, they're borrowing huge, huge amount of money. Um, so there's this gradually. The financial you mean that those investment vehicles don't go on their on the books of the government? Local they government? don't go on the books of the local government. Wow. They are borrowing at the behest of the local governments and they're doing things for the local governments. Uh, they, in terms of accounting, they don't count in a sense. Uh, so, so it's just, uh, there's, you know, as much as we worry about the U S government borrowing more money, China is doing it on a much bigger scale as a share of the GDP. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, 1 trillion, uh, infrastructure programs, <laughs> I mean, that's like, okay, it's bad, but like the US GDP, you know, it's like over $20 trillion. And you're really talking about, you know, over the course of 10 years, $100 billion a year versus $300 billion a year is a tiny share of GDP. In China, you have this kind of 
20, 30% of GDP and borrowing by all government entities, if you put it all together every single year. Wow. Uh, wow. A very high debt economy. Again, it's not a problem because all the banks are owned by the Chinese government. But when you create so much liability in the central bank, the threat of capital flight is always present. Yeah, yeah. And, and we talked about that, uh, the constraints on capital flight. Uh, Professor Xi, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research. And we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of The Peel.News.